welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Madden America podcast. This is Ayurdhidhar, your host for today. As I conduct this interview, we are living in strange and scary times because of the massive outbreak of COVID-19 across the world. I'm hoping that next time I speak with all of you, things will be better. Meanwhile, in the world of psychiatry and psychology, things are always on the move. A new study in Lancet Psychiatry found that migrants living in high-density areas with other migrants from the same place of origin are less likely to suffer from psychosis. A new special issue in transcultural psychiatry has brought together researchers from different disciplines who have demanded a move away from the biomedical model and its colonial roots when it comes to the global mental health movement. And lastly, a new article in World Social Psychiatry has yet again asserted that psychology and psychiatry often ignore the context and knowledge of the global South, causing more problems than solving them. These last two articles provide a perfect segue to introduce our guest today, Dr. Sunil Bhatia. Dr. Bhatia is a professor of human development and the chair of his department at Connecticut College. He is the author of two books and around 50 articles and book chapters. And his second book received the 2018 William James Book Award from the APA. His area of expertise is cultural psychology, decolonizing psychology, migrant and racial identities, and qualitative methods. And he has many, many awards to his name. I'm not going to name all of them. Uh, but to me personally, the most important thing um, is that you, much like me, were born in India and then came to the U.S. later on. And so let's get into this. Dr. Bharia, welcome to Mad in America. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm really honored. Um, this is a real privilege on one level to speak to you, but also, you know, I share my concerns about speaking in the time that we are in, in this global crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I want to acknowledge, uh, you know, the profound uh, inequality that mm -hmm. this uh, crisis has revealed uh, and and you and me right now, at least at this moment, aren't experiencing that. So Absolutely, yes. That's so true. It's a privilege and an honor, but yet I share my you know, anxiety mm -hmm. uh, and solidarity with the rest of humanity that's going through it. Thank you for saying that. So uh, with that, let's get into the questions because they're all about pretty much the equality and the way mm. it affects all of us and um, mm. the way it affects us psychologically. So a lot of your work has been on what we call decolonization of psychology. Could mm. you tell our listeners what exactly that is, decolonization of psychology? Yes, I could. Uh, decolonizing psychology draws essentially on three different frameworks. One directly draws on indigenous psychology or, or what I would call native studies, mm -hmm. which is embedded in settler colonialism. The second one, it draws directly on decolonial theory that comes out of uh, Latin American intellectuals or the geogra geographic space, I would say, of Latin America. And then the third comes out of postcolonial theory, uh, which which I'm most familiar with, and uh, it speaks to me personally as well. So when I was thinking about decolonizing psychology, I was drawing and reading these frameworks to ask a question basically about uh, who is telling the story of psychology, 
who has the power to construct knowledge about psychology um, and who has the power to disseminate that knowledge and whose voices are being included in that story of psychology. So that I would say is sort of more questions I had about decolonizing psychology when I approached it. All right. So could you um, tell me what started your interest in this? Like what happened? Um, when did it happen that you you said, okay, this is something I want to look into? I went to, you know, seven years of university and college in Pune. And my curriculum was in psychology and philosophy. Largely, I was reading theorists, uh, key concepts that went British and American textbooks. My syllabus was largely frozen mm, from colonial times. Uh, and all the psychology that I was reading were essentially British and American. And it occurred to me very early on that there was a disconnect between reading and giving exams on the psychologists and what I was experiencing in my cultural space and cultural life growing up in India. So I could see in rituals, in public spaces, and bus stops, and I would drive my moped, my Luna. I would see cultural spaces, cultural meanings, cultural frameworks everywhere, the modern, the feudal, the post-colonial, the neoliberal, all different multi-layers of cultural meanings and practices around me in my public, private spaces, but when I brought questions about culture to the classroom, we were actually talking about psychology, I was completely forbidden to ask those questions. Wow, so even in I, India? Yeah, in, in oh, India. That's yeah. how it started. That because is. around those times, they said that wasn't scientific enough mm -hmm. to ask questions mm -hmm. about specifically ways in which religious meaning Mm -hmm. was so critical to understanding Indian psychology. So I was asking questions a lot about uh, meaning-making frameworks that I wanted to employ in my life, but I found there was no answers I was getting from my texts or professors or the curriculum, which was very Eurocentric in right. its um in its instruction, in the exams, and the way it was even being delivered. So that was the first, I would say, disconnect, mm -hmm. which uh, led me to ask questions about doing a psychology that had much more was much more rooted in in culture, mm -hmm. um, but in a way that culture wasn't just another object or a variable, mm -hmm. but right. culture was deeply embedded in right. stories of psychology. And so I did not have answers, and I, like many other students, I did what I had to do, got my degree. I felt very alienated from the very context of knowledge production that was happening in Indian universities. Mm -hmm. And then I, I decided to uh, come to Clark University uh, to, to in the developmental psychology program where Culture, narrative, identity was far more prominent. Uh, I would say around the time I was doing my doctoral work, there was a, a kind of linguistic, interpretive, mm -hmm. cultural, narrative turn occurring within the humanities, including, I would argue, you know, feminist turn where questions mm -hmm. about 
whose knowledge, gendered knowledge, knowledge and social location. So those were also being imported within psychology, at least in my department. As I went deeper into it, uh, formulating a story of people from the global south as having somewhat of a deficient humanity, mm-hmm. as well as the stories about people of color whenever they came up in that psychology were also relegated to the margins. Mm-hmm. And finally, over the last 10 years, when I was um, trying to address the gaps, I saw, you know, there were 356 Indian, 356 million Indian youth who uh, are such a gigantic big part of our humanity, but nowhere I could see them in the canon as well. Their voice, their realities, their sociocultural realities they were thinking was completely erased mm-hmm. uh, or not worth seeing their stories. I asked why aren't they worth telling those stories? What is it that's missing? Right. So that was the third, I would say, shift that occurred in my thinking that then uh, gave me the motivation to come up with a decolonizing framework to speak to these absences, but also to speak to the realities of the people right. who are who are the majority of humanity, mm-hmm. right. but largely missing from uh, the field. Absolutely, um, and, and there is a lot of research that actually corroborates that. You know, the mm-hmm. what who research is done on and mm-hmm. and where it is applied. Um, so you talked about, you know, um, doing your undergrad and postgrad in, in India and this really Eurocentric framework and psychology is being taught to you, but you move out of your classroom and you see a very different world. Mm-hmm. And there is a disconnect and alienation between mm-hmm. what you're right. studying and then you're not being mm-hmm. allowed to ask questions because it's not scientific. Can you think of like um, an example of such a thing or like a story? like um, One concept that comes to mind is uh, the very concept of oppression and internalized oppression, or I would say internalized colonialism that I was feeling in my master's um, uh, at University of Pune. You know, in the seven years of psychology that I was studying, I was also looking at how psychologists had, uh, the founders of psychology had portrayed Indians in their work. And they represent stark, highly racist. Mm-hmm. Um, the f- key founders of psychology, um, such as uh, you know Darwin and others, had, uh, and even J. C. Stanley Hall had spoken about mm-hmm. people living in in colonized places and as subjects as primitive savages. And as I was reading that, uh, I also found out that there were these very people who were representative of the British culture, such as Churchill, had called Mm -hmm. Indians a beastly people. Mm -hmm. And yet in my seven years of uh, studying that uh, subject, I was always told that the British culture, the American culture, was much more superior. Mm -hmm. They were... Um, far more advanced, they were far more better than us. So when I, when I told my professors and I challenged them that, why do we continue to study this knowledge that's so highly colonized and treats has treated historically Indians as slaves in this highly racist language? 
not see our own internal colonialism mm-hmm. here. At that point in time, um, the very oppression that I was speaking about that I was feeling was basically dismissed off as my rebellion or my challenge or an individual framework. Right. And even other kinds of uh, uh, histories that are brought in, for example, Ambedkar's history, mm-hmm. caste hierarchies. Yes. yes. Within my university, I was, I was as part of our own collective solidarity. I used to talk to other graduate students from sociology mm-hmm. in my own university who were teaching me really about caste hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Um, and re- upon reading Ambedkar's book, The Annihilation of Caste, I was able to bring some of the uh, oppressive structures that have been built into for centuries with mm-hmm. context. I said, why Why aren't we studying the psychology of caste at mm-hmm. that point in time? But that was not in the canon uh, mm-hmm. again. At all. And that's, uh, yeah, and so that was one example to me was very powerful that but psychology of identity of middle-class people based on studies done in the United States. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying class wasn't important, but the way class functions in India is very much deeply tied yeah. to caste. Cost. So I, as I was writing my, my master's, I was told not to bring caste in my analysis of class because that would confuse, complicate, bring, make it messy. And whereas we need to keep our explanations much more um, easy and simple and scientific and so on. And I, I don't know, um, I think very few people uh, in the West really know about like the subtle ways this kind of internalized colonization works, you know, mm-hmm. how speaking in English is supposed to be or wearing right. Western clothes is supposed to be mm-hmm. a marker of class mm-hmm. and high mm-hmm. caste and right. sophistication and intellect. And all mm-hmm. of those things get mixed up. Um, I used to joke when I was an undergrad saying that I could get, I was doing a degree in psychology and I would say that I could probably get a a job in computer engineering if I just spoke well enough. And it mm-hmm. was a joke, but it showed something about, yeah. um, about us. Um, and absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you talked about being kind of these, these dialogues that you were trying to um, have in class and those being pushed away. And that kind of brings us to the way Indian academics and psychologists have internalized these representations. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, can you, can you say something about that? Um, um, you asked me the question about uh, what are the ways in which Indian academics and Indian psychology internalize these representations, internalized in yeah. internal colonialism mm-hmm. as such. Yes, I mean one w- one way, as I said, was from an academic point of view, the way they conducted themselves in academia was one was the politics of what I would call representation. That is, they didn't challenge the representation very much. Right. So what was in the books, what was in the canon, what was being exported as is right. uh, to so-called departments in the third world. Mm-hmm. There was a movement to indigenize it. Mm-hmm. That is to give it an Indian flavor or reframe it. But largely the core thinking, the core positivistic ideas, the core empirical structure, theory, mm-hmm. canon, ideas, knowledge was never disturbed as such. Mm-hmm. They gave it a different name, uh, which Indianized it slightly, but it did not really change the um, core definitions of what psychology mm-hmm. is. The second, I would say, is politics of location. That is, even though they were located, many of them in very deep uh, socioeconomic conditions of their own background. Some were 
from middle class psychologists, some were from upper class, um, and some were from um, uh, Dalit backgrounds mm-hmm. in our university. Even in their even their own biographies or their own social location, uh, they weren't allowed to speak to that. So their experiences, their existential experience of living in India, mm-hmm. in these caste hierarchies, the sociocultural identity they had, mm-hmm. they thought it was really important to keep it at their home. Mm-hmm. That was the second place that I found. They sometimes acknowledged it, that it's really important to speak to their own social mm-hmm. location, but yet you do not bring that into the knowledge production process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the third place I would call it the politics of practice. So in the applied uh, frameworks, when they were doing their therapy, I found that as a culture, we spent thousands of years thinking about the self, mm-hmm. thinking about the meaning of self, uh, thinking about nirvana, liberation, uh, meaning-making, both at the metaphysical level, philosophical, psychological level. We had all this vocabulary. But all that vocabulary was pushed to philosophy mm-hmm. because it was not seen that it could be given scientific credibility. So mm-hmm. at the level of practice, too, such as yoga and stress-related uh, or stress-reduction exercises, they were largely borrowed from the West, too. There wasn't much room to bring in at least that point in time what I would call indigenous healing frameworks or indigenous frameworks for understanding our mental life because it was relegated to religion or philosophy. Right. So these are sort of three areas that I would s- kind of map out mm-hmm. as being, you know, highly um, colonized mm-hmm. as representations of being colonized, but also where you would see this kind of disconnect that mm-hmm. we were speaking about earlier. I, I want to come back to that thing that you talked about um, in terms of the self. But before I, I ask you about that, uh, let me ask you this. So you're trying to do all of this work on decolonizing psychology and you've been mm-hmm. trying for years. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you uh, received any kind of pushback? Like what have been the major challenges and where did they come from? There was a pushback um, throughout my career because even especially when you are beginning or developing any idea that's opposed to mainstream ideas, the pushback mm-hmm. can be very severe because your job, your career, your f- publications are dependent on it. Right. So when I wrote my 2002 paper on historical representations mm-hmm. um, and, and peace post-colonial psychology. The Orientalism it, one. Orientalism, yeah. And yeah. rethinking of psychology. There was considerable pushback by the reviewers and a, somewhat of a denial that this is not as severe Um, because I do a hundred year portrait of the ways in which psychology has been complicit in advancing the colonial agenda Hmm. directly or indirectly. And I name all the key founders Mm -hmm. in that paper. And I talk about how Orientalism would not have been advanced or could not have been unleashed as a political project by the West without having explicit complicity from the social scientists as well. So in that paper uh, and several other papers and articles, uh, so there was considerable resistance and pushback. The one that was most common was the papers would get rejected because purely on the basis that it offended some reviewer, I was being too severe 
or we are much more progressive than we have progressed and that I'm talking more about the historical past mm-hmm. and that contemporary psychology has yet, you know, has made some improvements and why don't I speak about that? And then from other colleagues who said that there's always a risk in taking on the establishment right. and so on. Uh, initially, when I was writing about it, you know, I was doing two pieces, one for history of psychology and then another piece in human development on rethinking acculturation. Mm-hmm. Which yes. the one was more anti-colonial piece and the other one was an anti, you know, I was coming from an anti- racist position mm-hmm. one was an anti-colonial position both positions were very marginalized within the discipline mm-hmm. and to articulate a framework of psychology from an anti-colonial and an anti-racist position 20 years ago was um, was challenging tough and there was a lot of emotional cost and labor involved as well because of the pushback I consider myself really lucky because every like all the, all the work that I've done I've always had um, people around who you know so let me ask you this. You just said that um, your paper, the 2002 paper, uh, laid out these various ways that psychology was complicit in this type of representation and this orientalism. And it wouldn't have been possible without, you know, the, the social sciences kind of bolstering this, these ideas. Um, mm. Do you remember like one of the ways or two of the ways that the social sciences or psychology kind of did this, created this image and this, so any specific ways that it actually did that you know one very specific way that i argue in both decolonizing psychology and in that paper uh in 2002 is i give the example of the founder of american psychology g stanley hall mm-hmm. and g stanley hall wrote about adolescence you know he coined the term mm-hmm. g stanley hall established apa at clark university where i studied mm-hmm. but he he was considered to be the founder, uh, a pioneer, uh, uh, a hero of psychology. And that's how the story was told to us. Mm-hmm. But only much later when I started reading his work uh, that I found him to be a, you know, an advocate for colonialism, mm-hmm. where he speaks darkly about that if we don't uh, domesticate and if we don't control and train uh, these um, so-called primitive people, mm-hmm. this this world that we're living in would be, you know, overrun by people who are in sort of inferior in their thinking mm-hmm. right. and so on. So we needed to either, I think he uses words and I have an excerpt in that and off the cuff I can remember, he says, you know, we need to do this kind of thinking with politicians and soldiers mm-hmm. about uh, you know, how to domesticate or wipe out these populations. Mm-hmm. So there was an, a hint, maybe not an explicit agenda mm-hmm. of genocide, but that's sort of went very unacknowledged in many of these theorists, you know, including Darwin's work that I, you know, with my colleague Stephanie Shields, we both published a piece in American Psychologist where we trace some of the... Uh, you know, racism that was mm-hmm. uh, espoused in some in his work. Yes, so th- so those are two instances I could give, and then there are several others that I draw out about the modern subject of like who the psycho who the psychological subject is. The psychological subject, essentially, I say, the modern subject is is white Anglo-Saxon upper class elite American mm-hmm. around this subject from this subject 
emanates much of knowledge about human psychology mm -hmm. and then gets uh, transported and exported to the rest of the world. I was not, of course, the first one to say that. There were many others whom I give credit to in my book on whom I was, you know, drawing on to make some of these claims. Thank you for that. Um, I don't know if people are aware that, I mean, G. Stanley Hall was like a big figure, right? These aren't people mm -hmm. on the margins of psychology. Mm -hmm. Or I think the work of, um, was it Cyril Burt? Another, right? Uh, right? Mm -hmm. uh, intelligence as, uh, as something that's inherited and then turned out that a lot of his data was fake and just completely. So, yeah, these were big people um, in psychology. So thank you for talking about that. I want to come back to what you said about the self. You talked about, you know, uh, the, the Indian culture, which is kind of a bizarre statement because it's so heterogeneous and every few hundred miles, you know, there are new languages and stuff. But um, the Indian culture, you said, you know, has this huge set of knowledge on the self. Um, but the way we usually talk about the self in psychology and, uh, you know, even in the West, uh, where you and I live, at least in the U.S., I mean, I've heard people say things like, you know, you have to find your true self or uh, be yourself. And I sometimes wondered, that makes sense to me, but if I, as a child, I told my mother I'm trying to be myself, she would look at me as if, like, this is the most absurd thing to say. What does that even right. mean? Right. And now I know it's not because she was just, she didn't care. It's because it's a bizarre concept. Mm. So we can say the word self, but they mean different things. And you've written about the neoliberal self. Mm -hmm. So uh, could you say a little bit about this, this idea of self that is there in psychology, and especially the neoliberal self that most of psychology kind of tends to and, you know, um, works with? What is the self? You know, we have spent over a millennia speaking, inquiring, writing, analyzing the term self. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Kenneth Burke, or the literary critic, who said it's like a God term. Mm -hmm. You know, and this God term sort of defines all of the theories mm -hmm. and explanations from there, like democracy, justice, love. So this is one of those, you know, self-other mm -hmm. um, uh, um, term that's very central to psychology. But yet it's a, to me, one way to kind of think about the self, especially from the within the Indian context, was that the, the self is always thought about as embedded within the family, within the community, within the neighborhood. The distinctions between self and other mm -hmm. are fairly, to use your own word, very slippery. Mm -hmm. Uh, something you mentioned in your article, you know, yeah. that this is a kind of slippery subjectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, they cannot be encased within the individual. Mm -hmm. I think psychology's faith or understanding is based on, for a long time, has been on the idea of the individual as self-contained, as atomic, mm -hmm. and that self which fashions itself as separate from other. The transcendence was a very important concept. So with colonization come very new ideas about self and its location to society and caste and also power. Mm -hmm. uh, and after colonization in post-colonial condition, you know, we say that coloniality continued. So mm -hmm. even though the British left and we became independent in many Asian and African states, nation states became independent, but they lived in a post-colonial condition where the mm -hmm. colonial framework pretty much continued. Right. So there was that other framework 
which became, I would say, very powerful in understanding the self. And then the fourth one around the 70s, you see, is the unleashing of what we call modern globalization. Mm-hmm. With modern forms of globalization comes the search for privatization of goods, the movement of labor, uh, the uh, the so-called decline in social safety nets, mm-hmm. the decline in uh, of of access to what we call public goods, mm-hmm. and with neoliberalism comes. Uh, an idea that uh, the social structures are not going to guarantee the maintenance of self. Right. You have to rely on your biography, your strength, mm-hmm. your family, your education, your capability, your degree. So you become somewhat of an entrepreneur. Yeah, managing mm-hmm. yourself takes a really important turn. And that language becomes very mm-hmm. critical and crucial in mm-hmm. maintaining the neoliberal order. Mm-hmm. So we have a sociologist named. Gauri Patak in India speaks about it, that the self has to become very presentable, she says. Mm -hmm. So the presentability of self happens by, you know, acquiring new skills, whether it's meditation, whether it's new degrees, or how to look attractive, Mm -hmm. or how to market yourself. Uh, And that's where you have a lot of Silicon type valley language on cross-cultural psychology comes in and gives us these sets of... Mm -hmm. And you said ways of thinking about the self through peak experience, mm-hmm. through flow, through, you know, growth mindset, uh, and through these, um, these kind of psychological ways of thinking, which produces um, well-being, but it's tied to your productivity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And so that's the neoliberal shift that happens that you see in the landscape. That to me is uh, very reflective of what I would call the neoliberal economy. It's mm-hmm. you know culture and economy earlier in psychology were considered separate, and so in my book I really chart out not only the construction of the neoliberal self that's in decolonizing psychology, but the different hybrid layers of the mm-hmm. self. And and then this neoliberal self is bolstered by a lot of psychological narrative too. So, right. you know, mm-hmm. the idea is like you were talking about the management of self and there are theories mm-hmm. of emotional regulation and right. self-management mm-hmm. and uh, all of that. So what did you find when you, when you did this research and um, like when you were trying to kind of study this, this new type of self, mm-hmm. this contained self that is managed and has these attributes that are inside it, Somehow, mm-hmm. right? Um, they right. exist inside us. What What were some of your findings when you were looking at this type of self? I mean, each community uh, that I was studying, you know, the elite, the transnational, the middle class, as well as the, uh, what I would call working poor. Right. I, let me sort of say, you know, a sentence about each sentence or two, you know, yes. because they have a very particular specific configuration. Yes. They're trying to go after granularity that is making much more specific claims about uh, these communities and showing the ways in which globalization, neoliberal globalization was impacting and shaping their life. Uh, to start out with, uh, what I found the youth who were much more had access to culture capital to elite forms of education, to um, to wealth, um, 
were in some ways creating a very transnational identity where understanding of indianness was framed as being highly mobile so mm-hmm. the i use the word cultural streamlining that is that is no longer they were seeing themselves through the prism of orientalism or being backward so what the new liberal language gave them was a kind of indianness that could be exported transported to other parts of the world okay um, through their education too because it was now not only seen as cool right but also seen as being uh, cosmopolitan mm-hmm. but yet cultural and it was streamlined you would see with these silicon valley engineers in bangalore and in different parts of india where a certain caliber of people who had access to this knowledge economy yeah. were able to then move through um different parts of the world that was not possible for them earlier because there were barriers to their indianness mm-hmm. so there was an interesting transnational that i i speak about and i give examples of someone like nina in my book who my interview who gives in this is a long interview but to give an example she says um you know if there's a what it means to be an indian what does it mean to be living in bombay and elite she says well if there's a riot i will not be touched mm-hmm. i can continue going on in my life um there were others she calls herself the ultimate indians because i asked her what does that mean why do you call yourself she said the ultimate in the sense that we are the ones who decipher who understand who set the standards of what indianness should be and others usually follow it Mm-hmm. through fashion through consumption so she was using a very consumer oriented model so for her citizenship had become uh combined with this interesting neoliberal language of mobility going to oxford studying there practicing or keeping her what she called jaya parvati rituals mm-hmm. but yet being accepted by her german swiss friends mm-hmm. and then coming back to india and being very seamless mm-hmm. so that was well, you know, so but it's a, but behind all of this what i say is a capitalist transnational class which supports this kind of neoliberal self then the middle class that i show is somewhat little different in the sense that they are educated they've done their bachelors in arts but their income levels are fairly limited and they are now working in these large uh, corporations for as call center workers mm-hmm. and there's a what i call them they also consider themselves sort of the new colonial subjects they are they have to go to accent reduction workshops mm-hmm. what i find is they're part of management practices where corporate cross cultural psychology is used right. in them to maintain regulate their practices what i found fascinating was these participants who were call center workers had to participate in workshops where the workshop was how to understand indianness mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 americanness so they were like i'm i'm okay i understand they were saying and they were critiquing and joking about it, it was their resistance you know they were like i'm i'm an indian why do i need to study what indianness means to me <laughs> why do i need a person coming from europe in america to tell me that americans americans do it this way and the the mat- workshop materials that i saw were really about using very traditional concepts of uh 
you know, cross-cultural psychology such mm-hmm. as collectivism and individualism. individualism around that. And Indians were always seen as late, as unable to adapt, mm-hmm. as and they were characteristics given to them, um, argumentative, mm-hmm. too flexible, authoritarian, mm-hmm. hierarchy-oriented, whereas mm-hmm. Americans were exactly the opposite, mm-hmm. punctual, reliable, self-sufficient, if you look through many of the documents in these participation into diversity programs, mm-hmm. management, they're all basically being invented here mm-hmm. largely, and then they're being executed there with some reframing. It doesn't mean the participants there are are somehow passively accepting it. What I found was they reject it. They resist it, but there wasn't enough room to resist it within the organizational culture. Mm-hmm. When you meet with them privately, they can make fun of it and they can mm-hmm. call it, you know, Gora psychology as mm-hmm. in white psychology. Mm-hmm. But the corporate st- stranglehold was so firm, the architecture of power that, that because they were transnational, that many of the managers and administrators who were using MBTI personality mm-hmm. tests and all of those had mandates from 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 corporations. Right that uh, this is how we do, uh, this is how we evaluate our performance. Uh, you know, you go to an English institute uh, or they call it the English clinic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would find it fascinating, you know. And there you, you know, it's forms of pathology. So if, you know, if you're not able to speak fluently or in the way that Americans, you know, you know um, British can understand it. But in that you found a very strong colonial language mm-hmm. of how to be a self in the world. And what happens to even uh, people who speak in a vernacular accent? So I discovered there's something called as MTIs, mother tongue influence. So you have to remove your mother tongue influence and they teach you how to remove hmm. and they call it cleaning up your accent. Wow, um, it sounds like an amputation almost. Yeah, I'd right. Oh. So those were to me still stark reminders of um, not just remnants of colonialism, but the way coloniality and kind of the after effects of colonialism continued on continuing, but have taken this interesting neoliberal turn. Then finally, the third piece that I saw was just at the level of inequality, where somehow social justice issues in psychology were not considered core uh, to questions about well-being and constructions of self and identity. We approached somehow culture and looked at the ways in culture shapes the self, but rarely did we ask ourselves the question about, you know, uh, a large population of India lives um, uh, in poverty and has does not have access, lives with chronic hunger, ex- does not have access to, you know, employment, education, right. the indicators of well-being. How is that impacting their sense of self, mm-hmm. who they are? And why is, uh, why is it their lives are not, you know, given central attention? And it's through that lens I, I approached the local community and sort of started asking larger questions about how the youth who were surrounded by affluence were coping, managing their lives. Uh, how was this neoliberal turn affecting them, impacting their choices? And that led to quite a bit of realization of not just inequities fundamental, but also how they were not considered to be as proper subjects. Um, Most of them are considered squatters living on illegal land. They're the majority of our population. 
but our, all our urban development was done as though they don't exist. Mm -hmm. So that was a third piece that globalization was supposed to have uplifted them out of their poverty. Mm -hmm. and, but, but to me, that was another area that needed to be really spoken to the condition of inequality and psychology, I felt, had a really important role to play there. So that was the third community where I found these youth who were whose lives had actually taken a turn for the worse mm -hmm. because their income levels may have gone up slightly, but everything else around them was much right. more expensive, as mm -hmm. well as new call centers that come in where the aspirations had become slightly different right now. And, and they don't... Uh, feature like you said in our census and they sure don't don't feature in our in our research and our experiments i mean mm -hmm. the, the amount of psychological research i've seen produced in india the, the subject of it still tends to be this upper caste educated you know Correct. cosmopolitan right. city going person so concerning these methodolo methodological questions then um you've also written about um through research and other ways that euro-american psychology tends to speak for um, mm -hmm. other places and uh, in the process silence uh, many of these you know other mm -hmm. psychologies or can you say something about that can you think of a way like your american psychology ha has silenced and spoken for groups of people and just taken over their narratives because that can absolutely happen it can even happen and it's happened in social psychology even mm -hmm. in community psychology if you're not right. careful enough mm -hmm. and kind of enter and methodologies can turn out to be very exploitative sometimes. Can you think of a time that psychology did that? Two ways to answer the question. One way to answer is to say that the entire enterprise of psychology for the last 150 years has essentially been speaking on behalf of the rest of humanity. Mm -hmm. While it's a very local, provincial psychology emerging out of a very modern historical moment you know, in Europe and U.S., but laid, embedded within that has been the universal subject. And the universal subject is a modern European subject who speaks mm -hmm. on behalf of Asians, Africans, and so on. So that's one very clear. So in terms of emotional development, social development, what is education? What is the standard of how we live? What is health? What is, what is health? Mm -hmm. What is mental health? All our psychiatric, psychological diagnosis that mm -hmm. uh, we have derived from it, that we call it schizophrenia or PTSD mm -hmm. or trauma, they are very deeply embedded in, in specific um, cultural practices right. and cultural meaning frameworks, uh, which are highly local, but then they play a very dominant role in being exported to the rest of the world. So you could see in almost social psychology, cognitive psychology, um, uh, I would say currently neuroscience too. Mm -hmm. You have uh, this kind of speaking off going on for a very long time. The other more speaking off that goes on is, I would say, so is for the longest time, I think, you know, one book that comes to my mind is one of my favorite is Decolonizing Methods by, you know, Linda Tuhai Smith, mm -hmm. where she speaks about the fact that research was a very dirty word in, in the native communities, in the Maori community mm -hmm. in New Zealand, because the, almost all the research that was done on Maori communities, their way of life was done by 
uh, you know, Europeans who basically wanted to destroy them, to use them, exploit them, keep them contained. Yeah. And and so f- for her, she always, uh, so, so that's one kind of example uh, of, uh, of how that particular yeah. community for the longest time, that sense of self, um, their ways of life was largely represented by you know, American psychological frameworks within the context of Australia, New Zealand, and America. There are different ways in which Native mm-hmm. people have been uh, framed, right. uh, understood. So that's one example I could give you. And there's lots written by um, theorists who are working in the area of settler colonialism and Native American studies who are rewriting that history right now. All right. Um, so let me take us to my last question for this interview. Psychology, um, born in the global north, uh, deeply entrenched in the values of you know uh, the global north, values such as individualism and meritocracy and all of those things. Um, do you think psychology can ever be truly decolonized? And what would that look like if it if it was possible? What would that look like? But first, do you think it can ever be truly decolonized? Yeah, I mean that's one of the questions. Since my book came out, I've been asked very, very often at different mm-hmm. conferences, presentations, keynotes I made. And there, I would say that I think yes, it would be decolonized. But there are some conditions under what how it would be decolonized. And I think we have to think of it as a political project and very much in the way that we thought about abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can take an abolish, abolitionist model and say the only way slavery was abolished was either it was there or not there. And in order for it to be completely abolished, you needed to change its entire structures It's not just driven by the state, but the very idea of what it means to be a human being. So it's political, it's economic, it's cultural, it's personal, it's psychological, it's familial, it's sexual. All of these areas had to be the the very idea of how we conduct business and we live, what it means to be a human being. We had to attack that idea itself from its roots. If at all, we had to create a time where slaves had to be free. It doesn't mean that there was real freedom right after proclamation. You know, there was Jim Crow and then there was racial segregation. There's effects that you could see that in this pandemic where more and more African-Americans um, are are dying at higher rates because of being COVID. So there are health disparities that you can see. That doesn't mean that we don't have, but what I'm saying is that you needed essentially an abolition. You know, I think this is Native American theorists have been speaking about this, that in decolonization model, in their view, is not really about advancing a field or taking a social justice perspective. It's really about reclaiming land and reclaiming territory, reclaiming water, reclaiming earth, language. It's a model in which you have to acknowledge that settler colonialism is continuing to happen Mm-hmm. And decolonization really means um, uh, having all of that back that was lost, mm-hmm. essentially. So to us, there are some models of us to have to think about what a decolonized psychology would look like. So I think it's possible, um, but it's a long-term pro- political project. 
and you have to take the long view and take in some ways not necessarily a compromise view that even if we add a fragment here you know one is the add and stir model mm-hmm. which we've been living under right now that i think it was just today that in american psychology that i saw this article you know in 2008 jeffrey arnett's article came out Right. Uh, so it's uh, the Arnett article basically said that most of research conducted in psychology, about 95% is done on, uh, you know, Euro-American populations. 95% was a huge number. And uh, a lot of it is just done on American undergrads. So basically, psychology is the study of, I recently read Ian Parker's book, of what psychologists think about what undergrads think, something right. like that. Right. <laughs> so right. yeah, that's the context. Right. So, Correct. Yes. And, you know, American undergraduate psychology, like they're something like 4,000 times more likely to be represented yeah. in experiments and in our studies than, say, some random person mm-hmm. in Global South. <laughs> so to me, the project of decolonization is very viable. In order to reach the goal, I would call complete complete decolonization in the way France Fernand speaks about, you know, what, like it has to be a new humanity, what he speaks about. You have to, you have to definitely identify and, and really dismantle. There is an undoing has to happen of the colonial structure right now. Identification alone is not enough or suffices. You can't have compromises as such and say, because the colonial structure are like tentacles. There are all levels of knowledge production, editors, writers, the power of uh, the U.S. Academy. Mm-hmm. And these tentacles basically very much like the neoliberal order control, regulate all the knowledge production of psychology across the world, which knowledge is considered elite, who gets published where, who gets tenure, who doesn't get tenure, Um who is considered, which journal is considered prestigious and so on. So that mapping, that archaeology, that architecture of identifying these tentacles on which the coloniality of psychology is built has to be first formed and made and identified and analyzed. Mm-hmm. We're not even there yet. We've just basically just opened up the conversation of what decolonizing really means. Mm-hmm. And then when when that project, I would say, goals are fulfilled or we are there, we have to a certain extent um, understood in way coloniality is being reproduced through colonization and through power, then we have to ask ourselves larger question of what does it mean to do psychology because what does it mean to be a human being? Mm-hmm. Where we would have to look at not necessarily just the Eurocentric conceptions of psychology, which are those so deep-seated, there has to be a revival of indigenous concepts that were lost for 500 years that were not given any credibility, legitimacy. I'm not saying they're pure or somehow they exist without being impacted by colonialism, modernism, you know, traditional. It's not that they're just sitting there, but there are viable frameworks. And I'll give you an example of contemplative practices such as Buddhist practices, Buddhist psychology of Vipassana, which which have been handed down for a thousand years from Buddha to his disciples, to his disciples, to then it went to Burma and Sri Lanka. And these Vipassana, basically insight practices, it means, way of seeing Vipassana means they were 
in some ways, Silicon Valley in the United States understood the power of these, diluted it, made it into mindfulness to a certain extent, minus the the foundations, co-opted all kinds of it. And interesting, has sold it back to India, yeah. you know, as mindfulness for that class where I'm, there's a lot of there with the mindfulness movement that is powerful, amazing, transformative. I would not necessarily want to critique it without, uh, you know, this caveat. But at the same time, there is a commercial interest by which mm-hmm. this flow has happened. So to me, there are potential practices in many of these indigenous philosophical, religious community psychologies that exist, that we haven't even yet found out what they relationally mean, you know, for someone who is in Brazil and someone who is in India, without necessarily invoking the language of Eurocentric knowledge. So what we're doing right now is a lot of translation, essentially, mm-hmm. translating it back to so the knowledge of indigenous frameworks is translated back to an American audience. And in that translation, we are not speaking in the original language in which some of the essences. So to me, one is the Indian, and second, I think colonization is very much deeply rooted in capitalism, mm-hmm. which at this moment of our crisis that we're living in has very brutally and very starkly exposed to the haves and the have-nots, the people who have care, who don't have care, who can stay at home, who can't, or the frontline workers who are in the face, so to speak, fighting this virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, uh, for a long time, psychology is also, because it's so much rooted in the individual, part of the project of colonization, coloniality, has been to keep the individual intact and the idea of the individual intact. So Correct. there is, a, you know, so that that project of decolonization would mean that we have to really not just rethink our structure. Mm-hmm. So the intellectual project of decolonization will also only be fulfilled when many of us come together in solidarity. Yeah. All right. Um, we are also kind of running out of time. Um, thank you so much. This was this was fantastic. And it was great having you here. I hope you, I hope you enjoyed it too. Yeah, I loved it. I feel like I'm speaking to a fellow traveler. Or <laughs> it's like shared subjectivity. Like you said, yeah. shared subjectivity, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.